listening to Not Good Enough, an inadequate response to inadequate responses. My name is Mitch Alexander. I'm Tom McLean. I'm Tom Lang. And I'm Evie. We've also got Isaac here, keeping us factual as best as he can, given that uh, later in the episode, we're going to go into a little bit about ourselves and our opinions <laughs> and our subjective experiences and, and kind of uh, describe how we became extreme, ranting, inconsolable- Radical, uh, radical leftists. leftists. I'm actually Jeez. really happy and normal, thank you very much. I'm neither <laughs> of those things. But Evie, you're in a bubble. Wait, are we leftists? I thought we were just like centrist podcasts representing <laughs> the, the reasonable middle between- let's let everybody stay alive and let's just chop all the heads off everybody who's ever seen more than $10 million, right? That's the- <laughs> it's true, actually. I think the fact that none of us are out there actively burning things down right now shows that we are pretty conservative. Pretty reasonable, <laughs> I think. Every day I feel like a bit of a coward for not just smashing stuff, but yeah. oh well. <laughs> I have a podcast that makes it okay. I'm brave. I'm putting my voice out there. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the real that's the real activism. You're oh. such the patriarchy, McLean. <laughs> that really does suck. The idea of just like, well, I could give money to organisations, or I could be actively burning things down, or I could be organising rallies and protests and union pickets, but. I do talk for an hour every week about it with my mates and you can listen to it. So <laughs> the revolution needs people like us to, you know. For every part that recording a podcast seems like work, you do have to remember that we are just friends. Yeah. <laughs> We're just talking to each other. Just get together on a this Sunday morning and talk a lot up. of shit. Oh, yeah, we're unlocked out. This is also our only social contact. <laughs> yeah, but, like, it's also not. We play a lot of video games together and just chat over that about pretty much this as well. And at some point we were like, let's start a podcast. And the only difference is, like, we sort of save topical stuff for the document and then only talk yeah. about that then. We've also got, like, <laughs> two other people who don't record the podcast but do play video games. <laughs> <laughs> Is the only reason that we're doing a podcast about politics and not about video games is just because we like to think we're better than other people? <laughs> I think it's because, and I think we actually covered this in like episode like two or three or something. It's because politics is so shit. Yeah. That we're just like, look, we would love to be doing a podcast about video games, but you guys keep fucking doing this outrageous garbage and it feels weird to just get on and just be like, well, Satisfactory is pretty fun, hey? (laughs) We just need an outlet somewhere. We have so many good takes about video games that you're missing out on because of garbage (laughs) politics. Yeah. Yeah, I think like it it is in the name. We say it every week, but we haven't really unpacked it. It's like, not good enough is like we're trying our best. We are an inadequate response to all the inadequate responses happening in Australian politics, but we do already donate. We do write and call our local members. We go to protest. We try, it's like, what else can we fucking do? Why are you letting the, the planet and the country burn? Uh, 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 Mitch, podcast. have you tried voting? <laughs> <laughs> news for us this week is that um, Melbourne is in big lockdown. We were <laughs> big in, lockdowns, back on. We were in little lockdown and then we went to um, targeting uh, minorities and oppressed people lockdown mm-hmm. and then and then Dan Andrews went, ah, oh, you, you buggered it up. What are uh, you doing? All right, everybody. He put it in terms that us video gamers could understand. You've <laughs> arrived back at stage three. <laughs> <laughs> He's doing it again. He's doing like that concerned dad. I'm so disappointed in you. Yeah, he's not angry. He's just disappointed. First, I came for the immigrants and it didn't work. So now I'm coming for everybody else. (laughs) 
Yeah, and it's just, as as usual, it's just like a failure of, like, policy in the first instance, but he's blaming everyone else for it. Just his disappointment there. Oh, guys, I, I couldn't be more let down. You know, I hired the, the quarantine guards for the hotel and they caused an outbreak mm-hmm. and then I promoted them to manage the response for the whole state and nice. it's got even worse. I went, you know, couldn't be more disappointed. I got all those cops, I put them all in in nine tower blocks and you're still... And let's be clear. I think I think we should be clear. We're all very in favour of the necessary lockdown because we do need to contain the spread of this thing. And I think, I mean, speaking for myself, this is business as usual for me. I haven't barely left the house for like six months. Yeah. You know, the lockdown's only been going for five. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I've been a lot of a lot of people are out there being like, "Oh no, second lockdown," and I'm like, "Wait, what have you what?" Was there like a week between lockdowns? Did you take that chance to go to music festivals and pubs? Is this yeah, the yeah, problem? Like, they, yeah, people they did. did. And we've had a spike. <sighs> yes. Yeah, there's just, I don't know. I think we're all in agreement with each other that, you know, like let's just let's just wait an extra two weeks on either side of official government policy just to see what happens. Like I, my whole thing was like, you know, I'll start going back to the gym three weeks after they open again yeah. and, it, and mm. it was two weeks before it shut mm-hmm. down again. So I feel pretty good in that. Big yeah, surprise. I think, but I think that there's two different types of the other people. There are people that are genuinely not coping. They don't have mm-hmm. other ways to meet people. All of their social stuff was done in person. And so they're really struggling mm. now to try to make a leap to like more phone calls and more online stuff and not seeing people regularly. And that mm. is like, taking like a, a mental and, and psychological toll yeah, on hard. some people. And then, I, mean, I suppose it's three people. Then there's people that didn't really know that there was an issue because they don't primarily speak English and they weren't reached out to because it's a fact. We know yep. that all of the health advice came out in English and was only in English for weeks before it hit any other languages. So well yep. done there, Dan Andrews, you fucking idiot. The buck and they probably you. work in customer facing essential roles like yep. you know cleaning or, or supermarket or retail or things like that. And they don't have an option. But they work in the supply chains as well. Yeah, yeah. they're yeah. essential Which are necessary. workers. But then there is the third lot of people who are just fucking idiots. (laughs) Yeah. I've maintained a sort of uh, a stance, which is I personally generally don't like to blame individual actions. Like Mm. I realise that like the main sort of factor to blame is a weakness in public policy and not being strong enough. That being Mm. said, there's always selfish individual pricks. (laughs) Um, like, you know, I just see people who like, you know, do the weirdest shit and like, you know, um, like, I, like the, it's like the lockdown never even existed for them. But again, like the, the larger problem is a, is a government policy thing. Uh, and that's like, that's led to the people acting like, oh, this is such a, you know, it's a big deal that we're locking down again, even though we've basically been in the same situation for the last six months. I think it's, um. The difference is the lockdown is imposed from kind of outside or from kind of inside. I know we're all very concerned about the virus. Um, we all kind of locked down before the government instituted lockdown because we saw it was the right thing to do. We've all been staying in lockdown because we're like, okay, we want to stay safe. We don't want to spread this thing. But then yeah. I think there are the, the people who will only lock down to the point at which they are obligated to from external factors. When the government says we're locking down from midnight tomorrow, they say, okay, great, I've got until midnight tomorrow to go to the pub. Um, yeah. Because to them, it's a rule being put on you. They're the people who will who will wear a seatbelt because it's the law, 
not because it's a good idea. And again, yeah, not an individual thing, but I think that's kind of the attitude because it's that's the way it's being put around is, oh, you've got to do a lockdown because it's a law. Okay, lockdown's back off. Everybody go to the pub. This is a government directive. Keep that economy going. So I just can't help but think that, like, the first time before we went into lockdown, I can grant some people hmm. not really understanding what that meant and how the virus was working and what it was going to mean to lock down. Hmm. And so doing the whole, like, oh, I'm going to rush out and do some things before we lock down. i got 48 oh, for hours sure. or whatever. But last a couple of weeks ago, we knew that the the Greater Melbourne area was going to go into lockdown two days hence at midnight, and the bars were uh. fucking packed. There were so many people out, like the night before, the night before, having like a huge big bender, and then people like I'm I'm going as hard as I can to eleven fifty nine. Fuck yeah. yeah, gonna hit it. And like you've just gone through a lockdown, and you ne- you cannot not know that that is because the virus was spreading exponentially because people mm. were doing this exact thing. Like, what, like, I don't understand just taking the risk personally. Like, that, that said, like, I'm, I'm just miserable. Maybe I just don't have as much fun as I do. But like- <laughs> I mean, that's true. <laughs> I think it's not necessarily even a selfishness thing. I think that there is a real cohort of the population that is, like, sort of outsources their thinking to the government a- mm. around that sort of thing. And this is not saying they're stupid. I-, I imagine that there are a lot of people who have a lot of other stuff that they need to worry about, like, yeah. you know, making bills or the, like you know, single parents or something that just like have, you know, their hands full with yeah. shit that they have to manage so that they don't take it's- the time to research how coronavirus spreads or-, yeah. or-, or that kind of thing. And so they're just like, look, I'm going to just focus on getting through my life, mm. which yeah. is hard enough and I'm just going to do what the government says. And I figure if I'm just doing what the government says, that's safe. So if the government says lockdowns at midnight, then that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. And I want to go out with my friends. So, I mean, if it was important that I didn't go out with my friends at up until 11.59 on Friday night, then the government wouldn't have said you're allowed to do that. Yes. Yeah. So I'm going to do it. It's trusting in I, d- I don't think that that's like a bad, you know, person thing I, I think that that's quite fair to sort of outsource that thinking to the government yeah see that's the point I was tr- I was trying to make earlier like I don't think it's I, I think it's unfair of me to necessarily judge people for thinking in that pattern when like yeah you know, I I've recently sort of tried to loosen up my sort of ideals of like what people care about in terms of politics because people don't have the time hmm hmm I think, yeah, there's two factors in play. There's there's people trust in the system um, and then there's the fact that the system is shit. Uh, if, yeah. if people trusting in the system is not an inherently bad thing, I consider it to be naive, but that's because I've done more reading and stuff than other people have necessarily. Um, but the fact that the system is shit is the real problem. And when you combine those two things, then you have a problem. Yeah, and I guess that leads into the, the, the next bit of like... We've known for ages that, but not ages, but like weeks that wearing a mask is effective <laughs> in slowing the spread of coronavirus. Yeah. Early on, it was like, maybe it doesn't do anything because the particles can still get in. And then, you know, it was like, oh, but it actually is really effective at stopping you from spreading it to other people, mm. even though it isn't that effective at stopping you from getting it. So actually, everybody wearing a mask is a pretty good idea, but that wasn't sort of conveyed by anyone in yeah, Australian so sort of weird. officialdom until a couple of days ago where Dan Andrews finally told everybody if you're wearing out if you're going out wear a mask oh, it's a good idea and, please and then fucking even then like within hours the federal health minister Greg Hunt 
tweeted out this infographic that was basically a big poster that said, don't wear a mask. <laughs> like it, it was, it was a little bit cagier about that, mm. you know, uh, it was, do that I need point, to wear if, a mask? Yeah. Oh, make the decision that's right for you. Uh. Do you need to wear a mask? No. Unless you're in one of these long situations and then like a big thing of like things to make sure of when you're going to wear a mask. How to attach sure that you it. Blah, 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 Ooh. blah, blah. You know, don't attach it wrong. Oh, if you've got a respiratory condition, get advice from your doctor before putting a mask on because we know they're a little bit dangerous. Hey, just fucking help. Like yeah. we've got the state authorities being like, we need everyone to wear a mask, please. And then we've got Greg Hunt, who is not a doctor. He's a lawyer who's just in the health ministry position being like, oh, don't though. Fuck you, Greg Hunt. Like, the, so the WHO said about, about a month ago that wearing a mask is good. And, and even from the very start when we didn't know how coronavirus worked, like at absolute worst, wearing a mask might have helped a little. Um, we now know that it helps a lot and there is almost zero downside to wearing a mask ever basically people in a lot of asian countries wear masks as a matter of course um and they're not asphyxiating in the streets because of it Mm. the weird thing for me that i don't understand is like it seems to be yet another imported cultural thing from Mm. america and also we've seen it in brazil with their um proto-fash leader bolsonaro using homophobic slurs to describe both people that wear masks and the act of wearing a mask, which There's is just- There's a little bit of I'm racism sorry. in there too. Like I actually, yeah. I mean, I've seen this well before even yeah. coronavirus was a thing. Like I've seen people making weird remarks about like, you know, Southeast Asian people wearing masks during winter. Like, because mm. that's part of their culture is mm. that like, you know, that you wear um, you wear a mask if you're sick or you're, you know, to you're on public transport and you don't want to get sick. Mm. Yeah. Why not? It's just normalised. Yeah. And it's not normalized here. I think there's a lot of like Australians are really, really concerned about not looking like weirdos. That's a or wuss- that's a or thing woozies. that's always going on. Yeah. Is like you, you people don't want to wear a mask just because not everybody else is wearing a mask and they don't want to stand out mm. as, yeah. as being the one person that's wearing a mask. Same with social distancing. A mm. lot of people aren't social distancing because that requires violating a bit of a social norm that's in place, which yeah. is you know, the appropriate amount of distance to stand away from someone. But and so the government messaging needs to be like, this is the even though it's a bit weird, you've got to do it. Or even like, you know, trying to put like a bit of social, you know, toxicity onto the idea of not wearing a mask mm. or or, um, or or not social distancing like they did with drink driving in the mm. 90s, where it's like, you're a bloody idiot. Yeah, That was a really effective campaign because it wasn't like, here are the facts about drink driving. These many deaths, blah, 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 blah. It took the principal and said you're a weirdo if you don't follow it you're the yeah. one who's making a social violation we haven't seen any of that with coronavirus i think that's really necessary which i just i just want to know i mean i've got theories um but like i just don't understand why then greg hunt and the federal liberal party aren't trying to be leaders on it when we do know that it can help things. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, got, I've, got, I've got theories as well. But it's just, it's just, in, it, it, it's genuinely insane to me that it could be a political strategy to ensure votes at the next election. Just be like, go, go against the mask thing. Like, try to try to appear strong. My main theory is that the whole anti-mask thing, it already started as a rumour that, like, it would spread coronavirus somehow at the start of the pandemic. Does anyone else remember that? 
Oh, God. Yeah, there, there yeah. was absolutely an article I remember reading that someone speculated that it could possibly spread it. Like, it made no sense. And then as a result, that's affected government policy because they don't want to be seen as, like, breaking the social norm except on a larger level. Hmm. But just be a leader. Don't be hmm. a fight. That, that is the biggest wimpy thing to do. It's to not acquiesce to absolute nonsense and say, oh, don't wear a mask. It's all good. Yeah, hey, but Mitch, just, you just made yeah. a judgment then on someone being a wimp. But that's, that's what I'm saying. It is genuinely, it is genuinely deplorably wimpy and weak to just go, oh, oh what do the people want? Uh, what's good for them? No, what's bad for them? Okay, let's just go with that. I mean, I completely agree. The Labor government capitulating to this are cowards, but like it's still seen in terms of what sort of man are you to say yes or no? Like the argument's still on both sides, which is really bizarre. I reckon it's it's partly that the federal government and and the kind of conservatives, the right wing, have picked a side, and the side is coronavirus is fine. Um, it's not something to worry about. Take care of the economy. Don't worry about coronavirus. When you start instituting new things like border lockdowns, which they hated for a while, or masks, or social distancing, or anything, you're somehow a little bit agreeing to the other side that coronavirus is a thing we need to take care of. We need to change things to avoid. Conservatives mm. love saying everything should stay the same. It's great. Now, as soon as you go, okay, we're all wearing masks all the time now. That's a big change. Um, and that's a change that people who cling to the, the conservative mindset will inherently rebel against because, hang on, you're telling me to change my life? Uh, that's, that's not, not a thing that I'm used to hearing. That's my take on it. Yeah, if I look outside, things will be different. People will be wearing masks. I don't want to see that. Yeah. I want to see the things that I already know. Next, you'll be telling me not to shake hands with my mates. But that's, the, <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's the thing of just sort of like, oh, you want to affect change and everyone starts wearing masks. No, mm. I want the unavoidable change where heaps yeah. of people die from a new disease because I can't control that. That's what I like doing is controlling things. One of the sort of things that I really don't like in terms of blaming individuals for it is... Um, the the health advice now is to encourage people to wear masks. The problem is, is of course, that masks are now very expensive. So if you go into even uh, an independent chemist, um, although Chemist Warehouse I've been calling out for this um, in particular, if you go to buy a box of 50 uh, disposable masks, there's something like 60 to $70, which is ridiculous. Like that's well over like, you know, a dollar per mask and is well over what the actual cost of manufacturing is. And, I mean, this is capitalism. You expect a bit of price Holy gouging. Um, not that I like it or support it in any way, but just the idea of shaming people for not wearing masks when it is quite an expensive product to buy um, – this is something that should just be provided to people for free as a default. If it's public health advice, give it to people yeah. in the same way that you would yeah. a vaccination or any sort of medication, just give it to people. Well, we it should be charge people 15 bucks for the flu vaccine most of the time, even at the chemist. Yeah, and which is ridiculous. That, that should be free for everyone um, in the same way, of course, that the coronavirus, eventual coronavirus vaccine should be free for everyone. But <laughs> if, uh, yeah. I just, unless, it's, unless it's discovered in America. <laughs> yeah. no, I think it's just that neoliberal thing of like breaking every conceivable thing down into the way that puts as much sort of burden of paying for it onto the individual as possible. Yeah. I saw um, bloody Peter Van Onselen tweeting earlier today about how he reckons that people should be paying for their own quarantine accommodation oh, uh, when they're coming back into the country. The reason why New South Wales is saying that now is because they know they're on the brink of a second wave. 
They know it for sure. And they're like, well, we don't want to pay for this shit. We should just say in advance, well, since the cases are low now, we're just going to make sure that everyone pays for their own way. And now it's their own responsibility. Just watch like in like a fortnight's time, there is going to be a huge uptick in cases in New South Wales exactly in the same way as there is now. Yeah. And they'll blame Victoria for it. I saw oh, they already are. the Melbourne virus. And I'm like, they already oh, are. <laughs> oh, shit. Uh, Isaac's just told us that uh, that that's that's on, that uh, that New South Wales has announced that you're going to have to pay $3,000 to fund your own quarantine. Now, that's which, if you fly in or something? Yeah, if you're a returning traveller. Right. That's crazy to me. They're going to make a profit off of that for sure. Mm. They're going to figure out a way to make money off of that. And that's all, obviously going to increase cases. Confident. We're going to see within two weeks people in quarantine tweeting about how they've like they've already paid their $3,000 but they've just got the invoice and it's included like an additional $30 for lunch which was a 7-Eleven sandwich and an mm. additional $60 for lunch which was a delivery from fucking takeaway down the street. Like, the, And absolutely. they'll get the same security firm they had in Melbourne. Oh, yeah. They're not even enforcing like airport like quarantine anyway so... Like, all this is going to do is people are going to say, well, I can't afford $3,000 to quarantine. I'm just going home or yeah. I'm going to book an Airbnb yeah, I'm and gonna not, dodge it. I'm not going to say, you know, where I've come from and I'm just going to quarantine myself. And that is exactly how the second wave is going to start. Because there have been people, <laughs> travellers coming oh, from God. the USA, the frigging plague capital of the world, <laughs> just flying into New South Wales, just going home, just just walking out of the airport. Uh you can't pretend that you're actually serious about. They've closed the border to Victoria, but you can fly in from Florida. <laughs> yeah. While we were talking about masks, which the government apparently seems to hate, they friggin' love another way of protecting us from coronavirus that doesn't work at all. Oh, the fucking app. Yeah, on Greg Hunt's poster about how here's the you know are you you know are you sure that you want to wear a mask? Are you really really sure? Poster. There was a, a list. Just on the mask of to stay COVID free, do the three, mm. uh, which is this insane rhyming marketing slogan that I guess they've come up with. I've not seen it anywhere else, but you've got to put a rhyme where you can. Um, and the three, this is on the how to wear a mask poster, doesn't include wearing a mask. You've got to wash or sanitize your hands, physical distancing, 1.5 meters, and three, have the COVID safe app, mm -hmm. which we know doesn't help you stay COVID free, even if it did work which yep. it doesn't work. So it, it helps at a population level track the spread in theory, <laughs> but it also at a practical level doesn't do that. The Herald Sun reported on a case where a workplace where everybody had the app had a positive case. Everybody got exposed. The app didn't notify anyone. So now we have like an actual test case where it literally is proven not to work for purpose. Mm. Yeah. It's, it, it, it doesn't do anything. It's still got bugs. There was a, a, a Stuart Robert made a comment about like, oh, you know, a couple of bugs have been highlighted, but we've dealt with those and now it's all in ship shape. And all the security researchers that I follow on Twitter are like, what? what? <laughs> it's never, to my knowledge, it's still never detected a case. Yeah, it's, it's, it's never tracked a case and it's still got some pretty big security holes, some of which are fundamentally inaddressable. Like the, the only way to address them is to switch to the Google iOS uh, API that they've developed, that Google and Apple have developed for contact tracing. The government has announced that they have no intention to use that platform, mm -hmm. but because of the way that the tech is set up, Google's actually mandating using that platform. So as of November... If they haven't picked it up and they have announced that they don't plan to pick it up, hmm. 
the COVID safe app will actually be banned from Google Play mm-hmm. because of its security flaws. So, <laughs> well, it won't make a difference. To stay COVID three, do the three: wash or sanitize your hands, physical distancing, and three: don't fucking listen to the government. <laughs> Wear a mask. I think yep. Scott Morrison is obsessed with getting COVID safe app numbers up because it is mm-hmm. the only metric a marketing mm-hmm. person cares about, and it, it is his marketing baby. I don't think he cares about the economy, <laughs> cares about anything else. He's just like, I'm going to launch this app, and he probably designed the little shield logo himself. He came up with all of the stuff, and it's not picking up. Um, a couple of friends of ours, it's my legacy. A couple of friends of ours actually showed us this absolutely insane ad on TikTok with Zoomers oh. being like, please, 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 please get the COVID safe app, please. Oh, please, we need you to install it. Please download the COVID safe app so I can travel soon. I'm begging here. Which seems to be, yeah, paid for by a whole bunch of different business consortiums, which as we all know is just the Liberal Party in dress up. Yeah, a bunch of like health insurance places being like, uh, don't worry about wearing a mask, get the app instead and uh, max out your health premium. I don't think it's a fair assumption to make that it's just the Liberal Party involved in big business there. <laughs> it's the yeah. definitely the Labour Party too. They're all involved. Yeah, it's just the only thing Morrison wants to do, like I've said before, is keep the economy afloat in an unusual way so that Australia can be seen as a model like it has been under Labour. Um, and he wants a brand to be like his mm. legacy. He wants COVID mm. safe. He doesn't want to be remembered as like the greatest prime minister. He wants like COVID safe, the app, to be the thing remembered in 50 years time that saved the population. And it didn't fucking work. No one liked it or trusted it. So now they're just blatantly saying, if you get the app, you'll stay disease free. Mm. What? No, you fucking, what? yep. He, mm-hmm. he just wants to be the prime minister with the best rating on the app store. So the towers in Flemington and Kensington are still under police lockdown. It has been announced that they're not under police lockdown anymore, the, the, that they've just gone to stage three restrictions, just like the rest of the state, except for one of the towers, which is still under full lockdown. Uh, however, there still are police making sure that people are obeying the stage three mm. uh, restrictions. There's no cops out the front of my apartment building no. making sure that I stay inside. So even though we've said, you know, oh, the cops are gone and, and it's just regular stage three, just like everyone else. It's just like everyone else, but also with cops yeah. that the other people don't have. Um, they've also said we're taking the cops out and, uh, you know, the, the police will still be there until it all transitions to Corrections Victoria because we're just trying to get the model right. That's uh, Lisa Neville, the Victorian police minister. The model here being a jail. Yeah, look, obviously the police are here just for now, but soon they'll be gone and they'll be replaced with prison guards, which is like a police, uh-uh. I suppose. Like, they're just like, fuck off with the police. Let the people <laughs> who live in the towers just live there and you don't need to erect a fence so that they can like do their little workout in a cage which is also a thing that happened at the towers over the last few days anyway there's a lot of crazy shit going down around the towers because the government's really racist and they like to respond to health things with police solutions um there's been this interesting situation where there's sort of two narratives happening one is the narrative that you get if you are mostly getting your information from places that publish journalists, uh, which is, look, you know, there's a bit of tension and chaos, but fundamentally things are okay. And then a totally different narrative if you're following the thing on social media where you're getting the videos and reports from the people who are there experiencing it uh, and just the sort of the first-hand accounts. Um, And those first-hand accounts paint a very different picture where it is very much about the chaos and people not getting medicine and people not getting food for days on end or even really being told anything that's going on. Mm. 
that yeah like the, the this idea that like oh you get this you know this more you know objective and neutral picture from the press versus getting a, a picture from the people who are physically experiencing it right now of course you're going to be getting a more emotive you know charged up uh, stuff from the people who are currently being abused by a police officer because they just want to get some food but that doesn't undercut its its veracity you know like it <laughs> you don't get more true news by making it go through a filter that ensures that everything still seems like it's fundamentally fine mm. um so at the end of the episode we'll, we'll we'll put some links to some instagrams and twitter accounts of writers and journalists who also are living in the towers under lockdown right now uh rather than writers and the journalists who are published by the herald sun <laughs> <laughs> I think and there it- is something to the idea, though, as well, of like people have been saying, well, you know, you, you're getting an emotive sort of look. You're, you're, they don't know all the facts as well. So, you know, we should wait to see how it all sort of shakes out, which I agree with in principle if it wasn't for the fact that so far we have an unknown variable of like people inside the towers speaking for the very first time at a national level and they are obviously emotionally charged and emotionally affected by all this. And we don't know how good their reporting is going to be. We don't know, you know, whether they're going to be leaping to conclusions that maybe they shouldn't. But what we do know is that the government and most of the mass media are fucking garbage and will lie through their teeth <laughs> about things that don't work in their favour. So on balance already, I'm more inclined to believe the emotive pleas of people trapped in the towers. Like, I'm quite happy to look at both things as they come out and put them together and go, okay, they were slightly, you know, overreacting to this thing. Then the government lied about this other thing. But already, like, let's take it with a bit of a grain of salt when the fucking Herald Sun talks about these lockdown towers. Mm. But we're not getting the full story from them. Yeah, you got two little kids coming up to you. One of them's bawling his eyes out and he's like, he hit me. And the, the other one's like, I didn't. And you look at the two of them and you're like, well, mm-hmm. <laughs> one of them is crying. So that's not very credible. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> it's important for us to be critical, even of the sources we'd normally trust. Um, there's a journalist on the ground from The Guardian called Margaret Simons, who's been reporting since the start, um, again, on the ground, getting uh, interviewing residents off the towers. But the problem is, as well, is that in the attempt to give a neutral perspective, as most journalists would tend to do, is that she's also uncritically um, giving voice to the perspectives of the police and of the state. Mm. And so she's just reporting things straight up about how the cops are feeling. So there was one tweet that she made was about how the cops were really tired and exhausted. Mm. And it's like, cool. I, you know, what am I supposed to care about the people enforcing the police state on these people is supposed (laughs) to think? Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's the bully narrative just being like, look, we're neutrally reporting both sides. We've got our kid over here who's pretty sad because he just got the shit beat out of him. But then we've also we've made sure to give equal time to the bully's sort of side of the story. And, you know, he he hit him so hard that his, his fists are still hurting. So, you know, oh have a care. It's a thing where if this was the first time this had happened, we, we might not be so sceptical. But this is exactly the same story you see time and time again where it's reported in this even-handed, neutral kind of way where it's like, oh, but maybe the over-heavy-handed police response is is okay and there are reasons. We're not getting the whole story. And then a year later, 
oh, someone releases a video or does an expose of a detention center or a juvenile jail or some other government thing. And everyone goes, oh, wow, it was really bad. People were having their lives destroyed. How could we have known? And everyone who followed it at the time went, well, all the information was there and we told you, but but all the journalists just said, oh, we got to listen to both sides and we'll, we'll mostly report the police. It's the same thing that yep. happens time and time and time again. You get the stories from the inside. They're coming out, but they're constantly being silenced. So, all of us agree with each other. We didn't used to. <laughs> I think we still have disagreements. I'm disagreeing with you right now. <laughs> we have riffed about it before, about like where McLean and I fundamentally disagree is why rich people hate us. <laughs> but... But yeah, no, we figured it'd be a, um, a pretty good time, 27 episodes in, to um, pull back the kimono a little bit and be like, ooh, what's this? Ooh, it's my ideology. Ooh, how did that form? <laughs> <laughs> How's that form? <laughs> I really like the, this backstory of seeing someone's junk and being like, what's the narrative? <laughs> How'd that all come about? What's the, what's the go with all this then? So who goes first? We we didn't sort of, and we also don't have notes for this. So everyone's just going to be like, "Oh, when was it that I first became a lefty?" Hmm. Nah, I live and breathe it. All right, you go first, Mitch. <laughs> lefty from day one, little baby Mitch, smash the state. Yeah, I mean, in hindsight, for me, um, it was that my parents were heavy unionists, and so before I was old enough to see them do, um. You know, to see to see them work with within their unions and on picket lines and stuff, there was always there would have just been an air of the fact that they're in a union and it's good, or they oh I had to talk to my union rep today, just overhearing conversation, blah blah blah. And then when I got a bit older, um, one of the first things I can remember is my dad was on the union picket lines at the um, the Queensland docks in the Wharfies Union um, during the Howard era. They were trying to pass some sort of horrible fucking um, you know pay cuts and uh, they were trying to dismantle all the different rates and all the different benefits and whatnot. And they got all these scabs in and blah, blah, blah. And um, I remember going down, like my mum was cooking for the unionists when wow. we would go down to see my oh, dad nice. and on the picket line and whatnot. And I remember feeling this really like proud sense of like, oh, my dad did that. Fuck it. When I went down there and there were all these tents up and they – they recently had to move the picket line back because he told me that, you know, they, they tore down the fence that was actually keeping them out. And one of the funniest things was there was a dude on a megaphone yelling abuse at this security guard who was still contractually obliged, clearly, to stand guard next to the old entrance, which was just a wireframe <laughs> gate with no gate attached to it because the unionists had already torn it down. But he was still fucking standing there next to it for no good reason. <laughs> but I remember being so proud of my dad and all of his mates for, like, you know, standing up for what's right and, you know, doing what's good for the worker. It was only later that I realised that what had clearly happened was that a whole bunch of wharfies had gotten absolutely tanked and in a blind, drunken rage, like, committed some like petty larceny and destruction of private property. Um, But like, yeah, so it was, you know, from that, I also, I remember through high school, I was always trying to like get petitions together. There was one in particular, there was a teacher who was a fucking creep and an asshole. 
and I tried to get a petition together to get him fired or moved on and was pulled into the principal's office pretty quick to be like, you can't organise kids, uh-huh. like, you can't unionise like that. <laughs> and then like six years later, oh, he was- first encounter with a Pinkerton. Yeah. Uh-huh, yes. <laughs> but yeah, years years later, it turns out he was um, he was fired for um, like flirting and groping a like 16-year-old girl or some shit. So mm. I was right. Mm. Um but I think for me, it was like, that was the foundation. And then from there, like my mum was friends with people that worked in the Democrats as a political party. Um, and oh, yeah. Yeah, that didn't go well. I remember the Democrats? Yeah. <laughs> remember, remember how they ran an entire campaign on, they 100% vote against the GST. And then it came down to them to pass the GST and they passed it. And then they <laughs> dissolved like the day later. <laughs> oh boy. Um, but yeah, I think so. That was all the sort of the setup, and then it was the um, like dragging us into the Iraq War and the children overboard. Those were the two clarifying moments for me as a as a young person. Just be like, oh, politicians are shitheads, and it seems like can, the right wing is worse than the left wing. Left yeah. wing, in my mind, has always just been like workers' rights and equality, egalitarian principles, free healthcare, whatever, whatever, whatever. And conservatives just seemed like the, like, anathema to that, the complete opposite. That's how I sort of started. And then I started reading more and more and getting into the theory of it because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big, big nerd. And, yeah, it turns out I was 100% correct in thinking that from back yeah. in the day when I was a kid. They are all shit. <laughs> it's nice when it turns out you're on the right side. I think it's, it's for, for people who, like, you know, who are our age, who are politically engaged now, um, I would say that, you know, Iraq um, people... Uh, refugees overboard all those sort of specific incidents are what made them what they are now yeah Um, yeah, that's when I became an activist as well yeah it's just realizing oh and I think that that flashpoint where you realize that both sides quote unquote in um, our parliament are both fine with letting those things happen Mm. and then Mm. you realize oh okay something's wrong like I think yeah. I, I kind of grew up with a very um, conservative politically family, and which is not unusual even with being an immigrant family, as you would like. I think a lot of people have sort of heard the stories of um, migrant families who understand that they're there by you know their own hard work, um, and therefore you know they deserve to be there somehow. Um, I, I sort of pushed back against – I remember pushing back against it quite hard. My dad used to listen to and um, call into um, Alan Jones's uh, radio show mm. as well. Uh, we had a lot of screaming matches about that in the car when I was a teenager. <laughs> I, um, yeah, I like read. my dad was definitely like keen on the whole, well, I, des- I worked hard and I deserve to be here sort of thing. And, uh, you know, then Iraq happened um, – I remember, like Mitch, you mentioned the dock workers strike. I remember hearing about that on the news, but not really understanding it. And no one really learns about unions in school, um, unless it's just like sort of a passing mention of them being thugs in like a historical anecdote. Um, so I didn't really know what a union was. Um, I remember when I, even when I started uni, that was around at the time that the whole voluntary student unionism thing was happening. And even as someone who, by that point, I considered myself very progressive, um, I mean in the terms of I liked Natasha Stott Despoja. And oh, yeah, yeah, she was, she was yeah. I, I'm a girl of a certain age in Australia 
who considers who considered herself progressive and I thought that Doc Martin wearing blonde was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> um, so yeah, like <laughs> um, so yeah, like I, I remember thinking, you know, that I was quite progressive, but I still looking back on it now, I just think of all the things that I just sort of accepted without really too much analysis of it. Like I was there for a law degree and I wasn't particularly interested in Stu Pole, much to my benefit years later, I should say. <laughs> um, but when voluntary student unionism happened, I was paying my way through uni and I fully bought the idea that, oh, this is just an extra fee. I don't need to be paying this. I, it seems like they're making a big deal out of nothing, which is I'm, obviously I'm embarrassed by that now, but I – definitely was guilty of like sort of seeing that just at base level and going, well, I don't, this doesn't concern me. So why would I pay for it? Uh, you know, I should have the right to not pay for it if I want to. Um, and yeah, and like same as every, again, every other kid my age now, um, I started retail, I joined the shoppies union and also the pharmacy guild, which wasn't particularly great either. Uh, and, <laughs> and like the, these are the sort of unions that sort of make teenagers mm. and young adults sort of jaded by the concept of a union because they don't That's see, what for, hey? yeah, you, you, you don't see the benefit in it for yourself. Um, it's shocking to me now as a 30 something year old adult to think about how much the shoppies has jaded an entire generation to the concept of unionism and how much of a benefit it is to see that coming back now because, you know, it's undoing people's thoughts about it. Um, yeah. yeah, seeing, like, unions like Hospo Voice and stuff who are actually yeah. getting out there and doing stuff rather than just being like, your fees, please. I, I think, like, and I feel like I've sort of been, well, I would consider myself pretty lib uh, pre in the last sort of 10 years. It only took really um, – even though I call myself progressive, it really took um, a lot of betrayals on Labor's part for me to realise, oh, there's nothing for, like there's nothing that Labor has to offer me that I would actually want and that would, you know, would serve people generally. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, they're, yeah. they're willing to go along with every sort of destructive thing that the Liberal Party is doing. So mm. what is there for me? Oh, yeah. Kevin 07 was like the progressive <laughs> revolution of Australia when I was growing up. And then a little while later, it's like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's like, and I don't want to consider myself jaded. I think, you know, I have a lot of hope for what younger activists are doing now. Um, but yeah, I just remember that critical point when I realized, oh, you know, and same Cameron Rudd, Julie Gillard. It's the same thing I think that a lot of um, 30 somethings feel about Obama which is yeah. it's a lot of, you know, speech writing. The system's writing. not going to change itself. Yeah, a lot of feel-goodery that really just amounted to nothing and, if anything, made conditions worse for a lot of people. Hmm. Yeah. I, um, what about you, Lang? Oh, I'm probably a little bit different from you guys um, in, in my backstory um, because I grew up in a pretty sort of – I mean, I say upper middle class. I grew up in the country, like uh, near a very, very small town. So I think it's it's harder to tell when you're in the country. I think you just judge by the amount of acres you have. Um, <laughs> yeah, if it's more than one, probably. Yeah, yeah but, it, you know, it's no, the know. country. It's different. Um, but the country is, of course, quite conservative, um, quite quite right-wing um, in a lot of ways, even though it, it really shouldn't be, um, at least my part of the country. But I think that 
one thing that is important in my kind of psyche is that I was an outsider in the country. I'm a nerd, you might have realized. Um, <laughs> I never fit in uh, where I grew up. Um, and I think when you grow up as an outsider, that's always going to affect your politics. You, you will either become a uh, you can you can become a shitty right winger who who tries to find a sense of solidarity with like white supremacy or something or being I don't know some kind of horrible incel maybe in an alternate universe I could have gone that way or you become the kind of outsider who goes oh hang on there's people uh, who are you know prejudiced against in all sorts of different ways um, maybe the the mainstream way of thinking isn't actually what's best for everybody. Um, and a lot of that probably comes from, you know, growing up as a nerd in the country, there's an element of snobbery. Any Anyone from a small town who moves to the big city um, has an element of snobbery in them probably because, you know, uh, there's that contrast, I came here to find my people kind of thing. Um, mm. But I, I still don't think I was very political for most of my life. I think I was I was always sort of passively lefty. I was like, yeah, obviously, you know, gay people are fine and we should give immigrants all of the rights that they need and that everybody has and we should take care of the environment. Um and so I always voted for like the greens and and things just because it's it's obvious we need to take care of the environment and we shouldn't be building coal mines and stuff. I I did my reading. I was aware of what was going on, but I never really I was never that involved in politics for most of my life. I never got involved in student politics. I was aware of things like the Iraq war and, you know, the refugee sort of John Howard years. And I knew that that was bad, but I think it didn't really affect me personally a lot beyond, oh, this is a bad thing that's happening. Um, I don't remember joining very many marches or anything, but I think one of the most radical... The most radicalizing thing for me, and the thing I talk about the most, is climate change. Because yeah. my career is a science communicator. Um, and most science communication is fundamental science. And for most of my career, that's what it was. It's, hey, kids, here's how, you know, biology works, or here's how chemistry works, or physics, or things like that, which is... Uh, most of it very apolitical. Uh, no, there's not a lot of politics in here's how the different forces work or here's Newton's laws of motion or acids and bases. You know, there's not a lot of culture war going on about vinegar. <laughs> <laughs> but I think scientists tend to be a little bit lefty just because uh, science is a way of studying the real world and the real world has a, a well-known liberal bias, um, as the saying goes. Um and so scientists are always a little bit lefty because they're like, hang on, all of this stuff that the right wing says about everything tends to be dumb. Um, obviously not all scientists. There are a lot of shitty scientists out there. Um, but then I started, uh, started working specifically in the area of climate change. And I'd always, I'd always been aware of climate change and I knew it was a problem, but I was hired in a context where and this is the context it's mostly taught, was hired in a context where climate change was a science thing. Uh, we're teaching it as a science thing. We're looking at the, at the causes and solutions and impacts um, in an apolitical, science-y, engineering-y, technology way. How do you fix climate change? With solar power, with more efficient homes, 
with electric cars, with better public transport, stuff like that. Um, and this is what you mostly hear. And it's very easy to do that under the pretense that it's apolitical. But as I did more and more reading and more and more research and talking to people, you realize that climate change is not at all a scientific issue. It's entirely a political issue. And you read about just the absolute depths of corruption. And I still maintain that the fossil fuel industry and what they have done to the world regarding climate change denial is possibly the greatest crime ever committed in the history of humanity. And I'm including the big things like the Holocaust in that. Um, the Holocaust is a more visceral crime. They were actively murdering people. But the impacts of the fossil fuel corporations and associated lobbies are going to kill many more people than the Holocaust did while keeping their hands perfectly clean. And they are going to irrevocably damage the ability for the earth to support life for thousands or millions of years. Uh, I can't think of a bigger crime than that. Um, and that's something that will radicalize a person. <laughs> it turns out. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, I think it's clarifying and it can either be depressing or angering or um, invigorating to find out that pretty much all of it's politics. Absolutely. Like, pre pretty much yeah. everything is politics. And it, it, it's extremely depressing. And a lot of people in this line of work and uh, you, any climate scientist worth their salt that's on Twitter or anything will generally tend to be very radical. You have these people who have quit their their tenured academic careers to go and pick at coal mines. Um, they have dropped everything because... And you, you don't come across scientists doing that a lot. You don't get astronomers dropping everything to go and pick at NASA. <laughs> or, I can't think of a good example. Because it doesn't like, happen. Legit. legit <laughs> most, if, yeah. if there was a comet heading towards Earth and we were all ignoring mm. it, they probably would. Yeah, <laughs> right. Because they'd be the ones that cared um, and that knew. And... And it's the kind of thing where people who, who communicate this stuff and research this stuff and talk about this stuff, they're all very anxious and angry and depressed because climate change, they, they see that this is something that's coming within the next decade or two. This is the impact in our life. Uh, we can't even predict what the world is going to be like. And it affects people's day-to-day -day lives because when you spend your day neck deep in horrific data, and also reading about the horrific, um, like, lack of action and counteraction in, in a lot of countries where we're actively taking down laws that we had to help fossil fuel industries. You go, why am I worrying about this stuff I already worried? Why would I worry about my superannuation or my career or going to jail or anything when faced with this? So, yeah, that's how I got radicalized. Now it's my turn. <laughs> <laughs> now that's all the time we've got for. <laughs> I, I'm I'm not radicalized yet. I'm just here to like listen to you guys go off. I'm just a good mate. <laughs> I don't really have strong opinions. I just like to play video games. <laughs> just happy to be included. Um, when did I get radicalized? I don't really know. My parents were also unionists, but I don't think quite as big on it as uh, Mitch is the teachers and my experience of unions as a little kid growing up was mum and dad staying home every now and then because there was a strike on. <laughs> so my understanding of a strike was 
<laughs> just hang out with dad. Uh, <laughs> um, but I also discovered recently that uh, I, I found when I moved house this old book that I had from when I was a young kid that was given to me for like my, I don't know, sixth birthday or something, which is like a children's book called When Did You Last Wash Your Feet uh, by Mike Rosen, who was the guy who wrote We're Going on a Bear Hunt, if you guys know We're Going on a Bear Hunt. Yeah. So it turns out the guy who wrote We're Going on a Bear Hunt is a fucking based as hell radical leftist. <laughs> <And> <laughs> that rules. He, he wrote this book called When Did You Last Wash Your Feet that is like little poems and like these funny little illustrations. And it is just like reading through it again, I was like, wow, I was into some like full on shit when I was uh, when I was a really little kid. There's this uh, poem in there called One Cold Winter that concludes with... And rich people say, we can't afford to have so many schools and so many factories and so many hospitals and so many babies. And some poor people think, we can't afford to have so many rich people. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. It's fucking incredible. Anyway, so that's that's probably the, the earliest thing. Um, I Also, my heritage is a lot of like Germany and Eastern Europe, but not freedom fighters or hopefully active like, concentration camp guards or anything. Um, but just sort of... German civilians and so whenever I learned about the Holocaust or anything like that that was a thing that really just you know sat on me and never went away of like how do you judge the people who were there but weren't doing anything Mm. really like because that's a lot of people and it's like if you know that there are Jews being exterminated by the thousands in concentration camps you know around the corner and you don't go over there and physically, you know, destroy the place to get them out. How much of that is on you? Like, yeah. I, I don't know if I have an answer to that, but I, that's a question that's been living in my head for, you know, 30 something years. Yeah. And it's- that is just sort of inherently radicalizing to, to carry that around. Just being like, am I, am I clean just because I haven't done anything either way? even though I know that that injustice exists. Um, So I I think those are things that sort of drive me more directly. I I saw a lot of rich and poor divide. I was an expat kid for my early teens and uh, my family lived in Jakarta in Indonesia. And the place that we were living was like a a gated community. So my, my parents got just teaching jobs at a private school there. And so we were housed in one of the school's housing facilities, which was basically at yeah, this just fancy gated community. Um, and if you went from my pretty nice house, just on a walk for 10 minutes and then crawled under a fence, then you were in the village, which was, you know, just people living in shacks that they had erected out of materials that they could find. And, you know, th- this is like so, so close geographically speaking, like really like these two situations like butting up directly against each other that were such an incredible disparity in wealth. And me obviously being in the rich part of that and seeing that and just being like, how come we have a live-in maid who, when she's not like living with us, is living in the village? I'd actually not sure if she personally lived in the village. I was, you know, 10, so I, I, I'm not super across the, the, the exact logistics of that arrangement. But, like, just being so close to people who were so, so, so much sort of worse off material than I was. And that was really affecting as well. Like, my dad would, um, you know, had, like, a, a, a group of families in the village that he was in contact with who he just every week would go and, and just, you know, give them some... Uh, bags of rice and, and that sort of thing and like making sure that they were taken care of and 
without sort of getting into the, you know, efficacy of direct donation, like that, that's a, you know, structural thing. I don't know. Mm. Um, but he, among sort of his peers, many of whom were also very, very wealthy, it was a bit of an outlier just being like, oh, wow, you're actually going out into the village, you know, wow. And him just being like, you can too, you know, like all of us have money. You can just do it. You can just go and help people. And they're being like, oh my <laughs> gosh, imagine doing that. It's like fucking... <laughs> Do do that. Don't imagine doing that. Do it. Um, yeah. And then came back to Australia, uh, became a Christian for some reason. Uh, <laughs> Happens to the best of us. Yeah. Went to Bible college and in Bible college uh, just managed to get saddled with a, a really unexpectedly lefty uh, sort of leader, pastor, teacher kind of dude who put no logo by Naomi Klein on the reading list. Just- <laughs> Damn, that rules. <laughs> Fucking hell. And so here's me, like, just literally at Bible college, just being like, wow, corporations are really evil. Like, not, not the thing that you expect to learn there. So obviously. He had the one passage he loved, which was Jesus kicking over all the things, the money changes in yeah. the temple. Yeah. That was the only one he'd read. In fact, I'm not even sure he was religious. <laughs> um, and, and, and yeah, I, I'm not a Christian anymore, but I am still a big fan of No Logo and a big anti-fan of, of corporations. Um, and so No Logo yeah. holds up better than the Bible. It absolutely does. <laughs> Slam dunk. Yep. Uh, <laughs> um, and one last radicalizing thing. Yeah, so Iraq War um, was the first time I started going to protests and also the first time that I realized that protests don't fucking do anything. Mm. Um, no, that maybe that's a bit bleak, that, but we did go to war, didn't we? And we stayed there. Um, uh, and there was another time when Adam Bant was like at a sit-in at something while he was an MP and he got arrested for doing that. And I was like, that is the first time that I've ever seen a politician actually put their neck out. Mm. Uh, that got me, uh, 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 you know, uh, I was a very big fan of the Greens for a very long time because of that 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 one act that I was like, oh, this guy's okay. He's, he's willing to get arrested. Mm. For I, I can't even remember what it was, a refugees or a climate thing. Um, but yeah, that's uh, you sort of add all those together and you get someone who's so radical, they will get on a podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it again. Um, I guess it, it sounds like it kind of, a lot of these things boil down to, at least for people in our situation, which is pretty privileged in almost every way, um, to... What do you do when you don't have to do anything? None of us have to do anything to make the world a better place. Um, just like your dad didn't have to take rice to the village. Uh, it's a question of, of what can you live with yourself not doing? Yeah. Or what are you willing yeah, I mean, to I stick guess you your look neck at out the- for? The activists who are, you know, like reporting the news on the ground at the towers because they live in the towers, like mm. they are a, a thousand times more activists than us. Mm. Because they're like, you know, actually getting out there on the ground, that sort of thing. They're, you know, already have much more reach than this little podcast does, mm. and rightly so, because they have to do it. There's so many people who mm. are forced into activism. I, like, my story is the most middle class thing. Like, oh, well, I got this book of poetry, and then I was, uh, when I was living as an expat in a, a private community <laughs> in Jakarta, and then I came back and I went to Bible college, and that's why I'm an activist. Like, fuck that. Like, <laughs> I, yeah. think, I think there is something as a, like, with a through line as well, is that we all got there in part because we're, we are lucky enough and privileged enough to really dig into the theory oh, when yeah. we wanted to. That's a mm. thing is that like, like I, I'm a philosopher. 
<laughs> like, <laughs> I am afforded the time to just think long and hard about things I'm interested in. And so, you know, I also do laboring work. I'm a, like, I do, I work with people who set up and tear down, um, like, music festivals and things like that. And I haven't got a call for the last little bit. It's weird. Mm-hmm. For any jobs. <laughs> but, like, so, you know, like, I, I, I'm afforded the opportunity to, like, work with them, see the material conditions, and then research those conditions. But the, the real genuine progressives and activists and lefties that we need to hold up are the ones that, like, live paycheck to paycheck and then have one political decision ruin their fucking lives and they go, mm. no, absolutely fucking not. I'm putting my foot down on this and I'm working to to change that. Um, yeah, I guess it's that's the same been- thing as the, the climate scientists where like- yeah. The, the the people who are the like most passionate activists for, you know, the, the robo debt stuff are the people who are getting fucked by robo debt and they're mm. the ones who are like it, it's not that I'm like, well, I've decided that the time I'm going to spend is going to be spent on this issue. It's like mm. I'm forced into it. It's the the difference between having solidarity with somebody and being the person that people have to have solidarity with, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I thought one thing I thought would be fun is to to go around the room and we'll <laughs> in the effort <laughs> in an effort to you know um, uh, promote transparency and to talk about how you can grow and how growth is a good thing to be you know just to strive for is to talk about just one or two of the like terrible politics we used to hold when we were teenagers and, and young adults. <laughs> oh, I used to be a god, Mitch. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I, I reckon that'd be fun. Just because, I mean, I think there's a lot of people out there now that sort of think that very early on politics gets sort of baked in. And it absolutely doesn't. And oh, yeah. not only can you change your opinion on things and you should want to change your opinion on things, but other people can change as well. I think that's part of the thing of like, you know, the, the marriage equality, when you were talking about how protests don't work, an individual protest has never worked, but also... I think if we didn't have rally after rally after rally for marriage equality in this country, it wouldn't have passed. So there is yeah. something about the the unifying factor of like rallies in, in particular, but just the idea of looking at other people and going, oh shit, what can I learn from that? Maybe I will change my opinion. Maybe I'll grow over a decade. Um, so I'll start. I used to hold some pretty shitty libertarian values. <laughs> <laughs> Can't believe I'm doing a podcast with an ex-libertarian. Um, which I don't think is a, is a shock, again, because the privileged position that we're all in, um, I was I was just one of those horrible assholes, especially because, you know, I ended up doing philosophy, so you could see it coming a mile away. <laughs> but just like, you know, the principles of, you know, working by yourself and leaving other people alone and then the non-aggression principle. Well, just leave people to do their own thing. And, you know, if, if conditions are that bad, then people can, you know, work to fix their own condition. And I think Evie was right when she was sort of said that, like, for me, a big part was realising that Labour and Liberal don't offer differences for Australian politics besides name, really. The system keeps yeah. chugging along as normal. And it's like, oh, shit. If the system is flawed, then individual actions and individual uh, aspirations don't fucking matter. Oh, so on and so forth, yada, yada, socialism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'm much the same. Um, uh, obviously, I had some pretty wonky politics uh, coming out of Christianity, and then I had a pretty bad atheist phase that I don't think was really <laughs> coloured by any particular <laughs> politics, but I, uh, you know, now I will just make God's not real jokes uh, but then I was uh, – that's not really politics, though. Um, 
but yeah, certainly the libertarian, like, well, you know, like people are responsible for themselves and, you know, if they've agreed to this contract that, you know, one person's getting paid below minimum wage, you shouldn't have agreed to that contract. Now, obviously I'm like, that kind of contract shouldn't be permitted, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I can't think of any particular things. I, I just sort of look back at my past. It's just a, a sort of general wash of embarrassment over really every facet. Yeah. Right? Not, not just politics and religion, but like just being social and, uh, you know, uh, my attitude to women and uh, yeah, everything. I, I've been pretty terrible at, at, at everything. And, and, you know, being white, uh, oh, yeah. I, 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 I would be so hesitant even now to describe myself as not racist. Like, oh, I bloody fucking bet I am. <laughs> pull something <laughs> apart. You'll, you'll find some racism in there for sure. Like, yeah, I, I my politics are not clean even now. And the only work is yeah. figuring out where they're not and figuring out how to excise them. Just I think getting I'm all with, those pimples popped. I think I'm with McLean uh, on, on a lot of that. I don't think I can point to any specific things where I've had like strongly wrong politics per se because like i said i've never been strongly political uh except in like a passively lefty way getting increasingly lefty as time went on but i've i've certainly had that long ongoing and not ending process of deconstructing the whole white male straight uh, privilege kind of thing which which you know you're forever figuring out new things that you never really knew about because your perspective is the one that's represented <laughs> everywhere. And is, yep. and I'm like, what? Other people aren't white straight males? That's crazy. They must be aliens. <laughs> and certainly as, as, a, young, uh, as a young person, I, I was quite ignorant in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. I think my most, like, I, there's a lot of things I look back that I sort of cringe at in terms of my politics, especially as I've, you know, drifted further left over the last 10 years. I think possibly my most embarrassing is that I really wholeheartedly embraced girl boss philosophy. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> like, I, I mean, I, well, I was... Is there, a, is there a past Evie that would have voted for Hillary? Almost certainly. I would mm. absolutely. Um, oh so... <laughs> uh, not uh, even... Like, not even, like, in any, like, I would have fully been on the Elizabeth Warren train too. Like, it's really (laughs) cringe to think about. But so the funny thing is, is that I've actually read Lean In and I read it sincerely. (laughs) Which one's Lean In? Yeah, as as in the book by Sheryl Sandberg. You might have to give us more information. Oh, okay. So yeah, we're not girl bosses even. <laughs> so leaning is this book written by Sheryl Sandberg, who's the former CEO of Facebook, um, which is the whole sort of women oh, need to be more aggressive in the workplace uh, and put themselves right. forward for opportunities if they want to be taken seriously. And if you try really hard and pick up your boots, you can go and do it for yourself. It's not the um, system. It's you. It's you. It's again, very highly individualistic and even you know, at the time I considered myself very progressive in the in the way that a lot of girl bosses do, but I thought I just need to put myself out there and get that job that I really want. And look, I was, I, I wouldn't say I was a, a nerd in the reclusive sort of way, but I was definitely an academic nerd uh, in, in thinking that I could, you know, lawyer degree my way into a really good job. So I wasn't, I wasn't a loser. I was just smart. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> That's exactly how it was. <laughs> I had friends. <laughs> they were all nerds too. 
Um, but yeah, like, and of course, the first job that I had that was really bad made that fall down flat so fucking hard. Like, I had such a, it was such a horrible job and, you know, treated terribly bad wages for what we were doing. Everyone, like, you know, there were lots of people who were on, um, on non-permanent visas who are getting manipulated really badly as well. Um, and that's it, – it's. I'm grateful for the fact that it took like immediately one really bad job to sort of wipe away girl boss philosophy for me entirely. <laughs> I just like, wow, this shit is fake. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and no matter what, I'm like, I can't girl boss my way through this, you know. And in that job, I really, really – like I remember go, putting myself forward for promotions, uh, different, you know, levels – um, in the structure as well and just getting knocked back for the most bizarre reasons. And then I was like, oh, that's right. It's not about how, how much vocal fry that I use. It's you know, everything about this structure is wrong. And it doesn't matter how many times I say just to include like emojis in my emails, I'm still not going to get where I want in this job. And that made me question it. And that's why I didn't end up voting for Hillary. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I would have been I would have been Clementide Ford making um TikToks about Julia Gillard and her misogyny speech. Oh god. Can you imagine the future for me, the alternative timeline for me? Oh, We don't have a ton of actions this week, but we do have some shout-outs. And those shout-outs are their own kind of action, which is pay attention to the voices on the ground and the things that things things are happening to. Uh, so this, in this case, is uh, the people that we've been following for news about what's going on in the towers. But the same sort of principle applies to like things like robo-debt. The, the people who are getting slugged with robo-debt are the people who are the most informed about Robo debts. You will get better information from them than from Stuart Robert. Mm. Um, and, and, and the same principle well, especially applies to Stuart Robert is everything. The, the bad guy. Um. Well, exactly. You will get you'll get better accurate uh, descriptions of the violence from the victims rather than the perpetrators. Mm. Uh, absolutely true for the tower lockdown as well. So those accounts are Tigist Kebed at Therapy by Tigist, Ayan Shewa at Wa Ayan on Twitter, and then two people on Instagram, the writer Idil Ali, who is at underscore Idil Ali, and uh, another person whose name is not on their profile, but their account is underscore h1.ba. Um, but these are uh, some of the accounts that we've been following for news about that. Um, and we'll put links to those in the show notes, obviously. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Not Good Enough. We would love to hear from you. We always love hearing from you guys. So feel free to shoot us an email, notgoodpod at protonmail.com. Hit us up on the socials. We're all over the place at notgoodpod. And be sure to rate, review us wherever you can and pass us on to any of your left-leaning or centrist mates that you think <laughs> might like it. Yeah, I think that is the ultimate point of this podcast is to reach people who are in this vague sphere, but 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 want more conversation, information, things to talk about, things to think about, um, to get them as radically left as we are. Yeah, unashamedly a propaganda outfit. We're right to be so. <laughs> One Cold Winter by Mike Rosen, who's the guy who wrote Going on a Bear Hunt from the book When Did You Last Wash Your Feet, uh, which was given to me when I was about six. Uh, also, with apologies to Tony Pinchick, who illustrated it, I will not be including the illustrations in the recording.
One cold winter, the Prime Minister said, There's no money left in the government bank. We can't afford to pay the poor people. And the people said, You can't afford to pay the poor people because the rich people have all the money. And the Prime Minister said, That's nothing to do with me. All I know is we haven't any money to pay you. So some of the poor people said, If you can't afford to pay us enough, we can't afford to work. And they stopped working. At that, all the rich people started screaming, Look at the greedy poor people! Look at the money-mad poor people! When they stop working, schools close, factories close, hospitals close, and babies die. So the poor people became afraid of the anger of the rich people, and they went back to work. But schools still close, factories still close, and babies still die. And the poor people still stop working, though now it's when the rich people stop them working. And the rich people say, we can't afford to have so many schools, so many factories, so many hospitals, so many babies. And some poor people think, we can't afford to have so many rich people. And some people think, we can't afford to have any rich people. It is, it is just literally radical smash the state socialism addressed at a reading age of six. Also, this fucking poem was written like fully 35 years ago. And it's still a thousand percent relevant. So yeah, a big shout out to Mike Rosen. Massively formative for me. Not Good Enough was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their oldest past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded.